Well, I remember on Sunday afternoons as I was growing up, I would be driving in the car, usually coming home from a cabin that my parents would rent for a couple weeks, sometimes even a couple months of the summer. And it was one of these rare moments where everyone in the car was was happy. Everyone in the car got along. And um, we would listen to music. We'd kind of be this good, exhausted in the car. And it was, it's usually about 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night, maybe 6.30, that, that the music would be playing. And all of a sudden, and this voice would come on, and they'd start telling a story. And at first, I was sort of annoyed that, you know, the music stopped, and now there's talking on the radio. But then this voice was this resonating baritone voice that, that brought up these vivid details and interesting facts about someone's life story. And I mean, in 30 seconds, I was totally encapsulated in the story. And all of a sudden, two, three, four, five minutes would go by, and then the voice would say, and we'll be right back so that you can hear the rest of the story. And this guy, I think his name was Paul Harvey. Maybe, you know, some people remember this. Okay, so Paul Harvey had this way of saying, had ta- telling someone's life story so that it made me, every time I heard it, say, man, I wish they would make a movie about that person. I would totally go see that movie. So let me ask you. So if Paul Harvey got to narrate your, your life story, would you go see the movie? If your life was a movie, would you want to go see it? See, this, this story that we've been looking at in the Bible really, I believe, is truly epic. Not just because we named it that, but if you go, if you read any great book, if you see any phenomenal movie, they're all based on the book. And I'd like to show you just in a couple minutes by way of review why, that I, th- why I think that's the case. So, I mean, you can pick Star Wars, you can pick, pick Lord of the Rings, you can pick... Um, Miracle on 34th Street, you can pick any of these movies and they'll all have the same basic progression because they used it off the Bible. First, there's the setup, that's act one. You get a quick picture of the way things are supposed to be. In Middle Earth, it's like the Shire and they show the hobbits playing and they show the elves and the men and the dwarves, they're all getting along in harmony and you're like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. But then there's the act two, there's, there's the problem. They can't live the way they're supposed to live. They can't go the way they're supposed to go. There's, there's these rings that are made in Middle Earth, and, and one ring is made to rule them all, and someone takes it, and all of a sudden there's chaos, and they can't live the way they were supposed to live. In the Bible, there's Act 1 that's the setup, that God created the world, and it was good, and he made things to flourish and, and be abundant, and, and then he makes humans, and he says they're very good. To be made in God's image and likeness and covered in his goodness is how God created us to live, to be in harmony, to be placed in a paradise, this garden, and, and, and to given, be given responsibility to cultivate the potential out of God's goodness. That's the setup that we were given in the Bible. The problem is that Adam and Eve, the first humans, they didn't want to live in dependence of God. They wanted to live independent of God. And there's this, there's this, um, the way that God created things created a limit so that they had to honor that limit. And they, they saw that as something that wasn't good. And so from that moment, there's this rebellion, there's this separation. That's the problem that we face in the scriptures is we are now separated from God. We can't find life in him because we can't be fully connected to him. And so God, act three, makes a plan. 
It's similar to Middle Earth when Gandalf summons these, these people groups and he selects nine people to be the fellowship of the ring. We're going to carry this ring back to Mordor. We're going to throw it into Mount Doom and all of life will go back to the way it was supposed to be. So they make a plan. You can think about it in any book, any movie. They do this. And God did that. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, it talks about the problem, the crisis, the rebellion of how humans continue to move further and further away from God. And in Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to take this guy who looks nearly dead and his wife who has never been able to have kids, and that's the family that I'm going to multiply. They're going to become Israel. They're going to be God's chosen community. They're going to be the ones that are going to bring, show my promise, my power, my presence, and my plan to get people back. That's what I'm going to do. And in Genesis 12, it says that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so this journey goes. The, The thing that we see next, though, is that there's opposition In Act 4 of any book, any story, there's opposition. There's people and powers that don't want the plan to happen. In in Middle Earth, we see the orcs, we see Sauron, we see all of these Sauromen, we see these people that go against the plan. And every time a character enters the story, we're wondering, like, are they going to be part of the plan or are they going to be part of the problem? Remember when Gollum comes in and they're like, oh, he could be the one to take them to Mordor or he could steal the ring, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, in the same way, that's what we're seeing in the Bible. We're seeing these people groups come against God's people, but then we're actually seeing God's people come against themselves. It's like Israel was failing to live faithful to God's promises, and over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, what we see is a people sometimes being part of the plan, but sometimes being part of the problem. And so we've got to come to this moment, this act five, this climax, like someone's got to fix this situation. It's the battle of battles. It's where the hero, where the hero defeats the victor, the enemies, the opposition, and he fixes our hopeless situation that we can't fix. And when Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, not being his last name, but Christ being the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who would come to make things right, when he enters the scene, there are people going, I think he's part of the plan. I think, he's part of, I think this is what God predicted long, long ago. And so certain people are saying, here's how he's part of the plan. Here's how he's part of the plan. Here's, but there's other people going, oh no, he's part of the problem. He's, he's actually going against what God is saying. And so there's this battle that's about to ensue. Their opposition continues to grow. And in the Bible, we see these little glimpses. This is why this is the epic book. We see these little glimpses of foreshadowing in the scripture. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're in the paradise, right, where everything's good, God has this serpent in the story, a creature who talks, I mean, let's just get over that part, who, who inserts this idea that God is not good because he's withholding something that seems good. You can have all of this except this one thing. You can't do that. And all of a sudden, and he's like, maybe God's not good. Maybe he's withholding from us. And in that moment, there's this opposition. And then, that's a Genesis 3. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where we're going in just a second, it says that, that Satan, or, or the devil, is the ancient serpent. He is the one that's opposing God's people and twisting his ways. And he is the one that's taking them away. And so there's this external opposition. Things that are outside of us, that are attacking us, 
namely and chiefly the enemy of God, Satan, or the devil. But there's also internal opposition. Because when Adam and Eve took the fruit and rebelled against God, they put inside of every human being this desire to go away from God, to go against him and to live in opposition to him. So if you've ever been in a situation and you're like, why can't I change? What, what, what propels me to go against him? Paul talks about it in Romans, or, yeah, in Romans. I, I don't do the good I want to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do do. There's an internal opponent. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been like, oh, I just can't fix myself. Yes, that's the problem because we have this internal opposition, but hope is not lost. Jesus enters the scene as this hero who comes on the scene and actually with his life, death, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, is, it's the climax of the story, which then might lead us to Act 6, the resolution, where we make all things right. It's where the ring goes into Mount Doom, and then they show the picture of, like, Samwise Gamgee coming back into the Shire, and the music plays, and it's like, yes, everything's going to be right again. In the Bible, it's this book called Revelation. It's this snapshot of the future. And so many people have tried to do, so many people have tried to read it and go, oh, it doesn't make sense. So many people have tried to say, oh, I'm going to tell you how it makes sense. And the horns mean this. And if you just put a little drawing up of what all of some of these pictures mean in Revelation, it's freaky. But it's written in a certain genre called apocalyptic literature that's just highly symbolic and that we can read realistically, but we probably can't read literally. And you can go back and you can study Jewish literature from 200 B.C. to 100 A.D. There's all kinds of books that look like this book. But I want to give you the context for Revelation as we think about it in the big story of God so that we can just have a little snapshot of what it offers us today. Because maybe you're looking at the world today and going, okay, so... If Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is the climax of the story, then why aren't we to the resolution yet? Why does it feel like so many things in my life are broken? Why does it feel like so many things in the world are broken, and will they ever be fixed? And if you're there, then Revelation offers you something today. I would say Revelation offers a lot today. Because I look around and go, man, is Jesus really going to be able to fix things politically? Is he, really able gonna, is he really able to fix things um, between our races, even between our genders or our preferences or, or our religions? And I would say it depends on how big your picture of Jesus is. But he placed us in the story today so that history could come up, surround us, and we could enter the story as his people because up until Jesus only peop- the only people that had a chance were the Jews. But Jesus opens the way for Abraham's blessing, the plan to work where all the world will be blessed, and we get to join him in the story. So would you open to Revelation 1 as we look at what God is doing in the midst of the resolution to make all things right. Again, Revelation 1, we're going to start at verse 1 just again to get the picture of where where this, this writer is coming from. 
Sometimes people think the book's called Revelations. It's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ, or the revelation, the disclosure from Jesus Christ. Verse 1 says, Which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words aloud, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. This is the only book of the Bible that you're blessed to read it. That that says, go read it, look at it, learn it, study it, wonder about it, enter the story. And it's also this book that we think is written by John, the Apostle John, the one who was a follower of John, the one who wrote John 1, John 2, and John 3, and the Gospel of John, that same John. John would be very old by this point, because they think it's like 90 or 95 AD that this is written. All the other disciples have died. In fact, uh, some of the Caesars have become a violent persecution of people. And literally, crucifixion, 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 death by arrows, thrust through th- by a spear, sorry for the graphicness of it, um, killed by arrows, crucifixion, crucifixion, beheaded. And John is actually thrown into a, a boiling cauldron of oil by this Caesar in, I think, 90, maybe 95. And... Um, and he escapes. I mean, he goes in, but he comes out un- unscathed. And so he's banished to this island, Patmos, and he writes the revelation there. I mean, the Caesar, the most powerful person in the world at the time, could not get rid of him, could not kill him, so he puts him on this island. And people, second and third generations of Christians now, are trying to live in this world that they are being persecuted in, where they haven't seen Jesus come back, and they are wondering, what I would say is the same things that you and I are wondering. Can Jesus really fix the world that we find ourselves in? And John says, absolutely. So here is a really quick picture of who Jesus is, because I think what Revelation offers us is the certainty of his return. I think Revelation offers the certainty of his return. In Revelation um, 1, verses 7 and 8, it says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the world will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty One. The Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, so Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. I live outside of time. I mean, is your picture of Jesus that big? Because if it's not, that's okay, but just start expanding your mind to maybe see him as, as big as he should be. The certainty of his return John might even remember back in um, the Last Supper, right after the Last Supper, when Jesus said, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back to get you. I am the first and the last. He continues, I am the one who is pure and powerful. If you look at verse 14 or 15, it says that, that his hair was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like glowing in a furnace. His voice was the sound of rushing waters. I mean, this is highly picturesque and symbolic language to say, I can't even describe how great Jesus is. 
But he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. He is pure, and he is powerful, and he is coming back. In Revelation 2 and 3, he is the revealer of righteousness. John writes Revelation to seven churches, and he specifically calls out each one in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And he talks about the right things they're doing, but some of the wrong things they're doing. And he closes that section with this verse from Revelation 3, 21 and 22. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear. That throne that we described earlier in the service that that we said the person who sits on it is too great to even be described, Jesus says, I'm the one who sits on that throne. He is the revealer of righteousness and his return is certain. Revelation 4 and 5 talk about how holy and radiant God is, how, how he is a worthy sufferer, We talked about the throne room earlier, but in Revelation 5, it says that that who is the one who will be worthy to break the seals of the scrolls? We'll talk about that in a second. And it said, I saw a mighty angel say, who is worthy to take the scroll and break it open? But no one was there who was worthy. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the 24 elders, That's the one who is worthy. Jesus is the lamb. He is worthy of the one to open the scrolls, to to show the future. He is the one who was predicted to suffer and conquers death. This is why we can be certain of his return. Are you you catching it? It's it's pretty huge. And now, now we'll jump a long way from Revelation 6 to Revelation 20. He talks about scrolls. He talks about trumpets. He talks about, he talks about bowls. He gives this, again, this picture of the future that's hard to describe and even harder to understand. But all along that way, he is the picture of a righteous judge coming to make all things right. All along the way, he is seen as the one who will conquer. He is the conquering king in Revelation 19. And not only is he the conquering king, he is shown further in Revelation 19 as the beautiful bridegroom, the one who will pick up his church. We see it first in Revelation 19, verse 11, where John says, I saw heaven open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True, and with justice, um, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on a winepress of fury and a wrath of God. I wish we had time to just think about that. But on his robe and his thigh has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This makes that Mount of Transfiguration picture that we've seen a little bit tame. If you remember that from a few weeks ago. If you don't, you can go back and listen to it. But this is the picture of why we can be certain that Jesus will return. He is the one who is first and last. He is the one who is the revealer of righteousness. He is the one who is pure and powerful. And he is the one who is the worthy sufferer. He is the one who is the righteous judge. He is the one who is the king of kings, the conquering king. And he is the one who is 
the beautiful bridegroom who makes a way and a home for us forever. We can be certain of his return. What will that return look like? What is he doing? Well, Revelation offers us the certainty of those results. Revelation 21 and 22 are a great place. If you're a little bit scared of the book, if it's, if it's hard for you to understand, Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the picture of what heaven will be like. And there's no bald babies that play little harps on puffy clouds, okay? Just want to just clear that up for you. But there won't be any more suffering. Revelation 21, 4 and 5 says that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Write this down, for my words are trustworthy and true. Think about that. No more pain. No more physical pain. No more emotional pain. No more heartache. No more disease. No more genocide. No more murder. No more earthquakes. No more hurricanes. No more worry. No more stress. There's no more suffering. And the picture we have of Jesus is that he can do this and he will do this. Not only will there not be any more suffering, it says there'll be no more death. In Revelation 21.4, he will wipe every tear. There will be no more death. We won't die. We won't be separated from God any longer, and we won't die a physical death anymore. We won't, the life will continue to endure. 1 Corinthians 15 says, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where's your victory? Meaning it's not there. There's victory in Jesus Christ, and we don't have to worry about death anymore. There's no more suffering, there's no more death, and there's no more darkness. Now, you have to remember the beginning of the story. In Genesis 1, it says that, that the world was, was dark, and there was, there was waters, and God was hovering over the waters. There's this like kind of chaotic power, but it's dark. And then, before there's any sun or moon, God says, let there be light. Where's the light come from? It comes from God, who is the light. There's no more night because Revelation 21 says that the, sun, the city that God will create does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Revelation 22 says there's no more night. There will not be a need for a, night, a light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. There's no more night. There's no more darkness. There's no more waiting. Sometimes darkness is just waiting for God. There's no more waiting. So we can have certainty in those results. And the last thing I think Revelation offers is that we can have certainty in our reunion. God says in Revelation 21, 2 and 3 that, that he sees the holy city coming, out of Jeru- f- coming down from heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, the lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. This is the picture that God wants us to have of the end. 
He wants us to see the picture of Jesus, to know how big he is, to know that we can have certainty in his return, and we can have certainty in his results. And the point of all of it is that we can have certainty in being with him forever and ever. And Revelation closes in 22 with this picture of not just a city with streets of gold, no bald babies and harps, but a river of life flowing from the throne of God. And on each side of the river, there's a tree of life bearing fruit every month, not just in season. This, is, this, this should bring us back to the Garden of Eden, to the paradise that we were kicked out of as people. This is what God restores. This is what he makes new. And heaven and earth come together. And it says in Revelation uh, 22, 4, that they will see his face and live. Way back with Moses, God says, no one can see my face and live. That picture that we don't get in Revelation that's highly symbolic, that talks about the throne and how beautiful it is and the angels around it and, and how people are saying, holy, 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 and we don't see who's on the throne. We will see who's on the throne. We will get to picture who God is and understand it and not die. I mean, you, I can't even, I still, I've spent weeks thinking about this. I still can't fathom it. But that's the picture of the end. That's what we can have hope in. In Hebrews 11, it says that faith is the certainty of things not yet seen. So when you think about the end, if you have hope, it's because you have certainty in who God is and in what he's doing. And we don't live at the end. We're not in Acts 6. We're not in the resolution We're still after the climax and before the end. But we get to be people who by the words that we share and the way that we live get to invite people to that picture, to where God wants to take all of creation, all of humanity, and he lets you, he invites you to join that. Revelation 22, 17 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let he who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, come. Whoever wishes, take the free gift of life. Do you hear that invitation? I know we've gone through a ton of scripture today, way more than we usually go through, but how can we understand Revelation just by going little by little by little? It would take, take a long, long time. Maybe we'll do that sometime, but today as we end this epic series, I want you to know the story of the end and the picture of what it looks like and that you are invited into it. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the free gift, there's grace there. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to have money to buy it. Come, whoever is thirsty, let him receive the gift of the water of life. God's still in control. No matter what your situation or how you view the world, God is still in control. Jesus is still coming back and he is powerful enough and good enough to make all things right. And we can live in that hope because people need that hope. I need that hope. There are days where I wonder, is God enough? And I bring myself back to Revelation. I bring myself to the picture that we see in this book and I say, yes, I can live like that. I can share that with someone else. So what would it look like for you to live into eternity. 
the next series we're going to talk about and go into actually is what we're going to describe in that. We're going to look at how we live for eternity and in eternity today. So I invite you back to that. But as we close today, see the picture of who God is in Jesus, the conquering king. See the picture of the reunion and the certainty of it. And find yourself worshiping God there in that place and inviting somebody else to join you in it. Would you pray with me? God, we want to live different because of how we see the end. And for some of us, that just means taking another step into another day of our life. Maybe some of us feel like Frodo from the Lord of the Rings, and we have a burden that is so hard to bear. God, would you give us someone like Sam to carry us through the hard times, to bring us to the place we need to get to, and to know that you are the one that is the one who is in us and goes ahead of us and surrounds us and lives in us. God, if we are in a place where we don't have that burden, we don't see that, but yet we just are lost in our own story, would you give us the the story so that we can find our place, so that we can know where to go and know who we're running to? Remind us, God, that we are not alone in this. Give us the hope by faith in your son Jesus that we might share it with others. We love you. We want to worship you for who you are, for what you've done, and what you will do. Amen.